Welcome to the 13th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jerry, first, the number of people hospitalized from the coronavirus, particularly in the areas like New York City, that were hard hit by the infection the mortality continues to decline in these areas. New York City in particular saw deaths drop almost 90% compared to the peak. You may remember that a few weeks ago on this show, we talked about 20,000 deaths a week, and now it's about a third of that. At the same time, mortality in places like the states of Washington, North Carolina, Arizona, and Arkansas is rising along with densely populated areas of Southern California. The tragic data coming from nursing homes is instructive. Although people who live there represent about 1.5% of the population, they have accounted for nearly one-third of the total number of deaths to date. There's good reason to predict that the mortality would be higher given the age of the residents and their poor health status. And it's also a place of close contact and therefore easily spread. The implication, though, of the information is that the mortality for the other 98.5% of people could be lower than we thought. And maybe some of the current decline in overall mortality reflects the growing awareness of the risk to this most vulnerable part of the population and improved practices in these nursing home facilities rather than the broader social distancing efforts we have implemented This is something epidemiologists and other researchers will scrutinize in the future. On the economic front, there was almost as much confusion as on the medical. The U.S. jobs report from the Labor Department was predicted to show 8 million more people unemployed, but the actual reported number showed almost a 2.5 million increase in jobs. Fewer people had lost their jobs. The report was wrong by over 10 million Then over the weekend, the Labor Department explained that there had been a classification error and that the actual numbers were not as predicted, but not as good as reported. Rather than employment dropping to around 13.5%, it was more likely around 16.5%. The reason for this confusion is how the data is categorized. People who are furloughed technically are still employed. Although in the current situation, many will never get their job back. As such, the usual meaning of certain answers to questions like, are you employed, means a completely different thing during the coronavirus pandemic than normally, and accounts for this 3% distortion. 
The Labor Department didn't hide the error. It was on the first page of the report. The media failed to interpret the statement accurately. A further confounding event was the passage of the Forgivable Loan Program, the so-called Paycheck Protection Program. It went to small businesses who would use 75% of the dollars to retain employees on the payroll. It's projected that many of these businesses, when the dollars run out, which could be as early as next month, will have no choice but to lay people off. Rather than focusing on the week-to-week numbers, here's the key statistic to me. In February, 159 million Americans reported having jobs. By the end of April, that had fallen to 133 million, or 26 million fewer people with jobs. The magnitude and rate of decline is unprecedented. A former labor statistics commissioner from the Obama administration estimated that one-fourth of all jobs in the United States had been disrupted by the pandemic. With half of people in the United States obtaining their health care coverage through their employer, the impact of these massive numbers will be felt in both the governmental cost of public health benefits and the health of Americans far into the future. Finally, as we reported a couple of months ago, the consequences of social distancing are becoming more apparent. The advocacy group Mental Health America reports a major rise in anxiety and depression. Almost four times as many people are using online mental health tools now compared to before the pandemic. And although there could be a supply chain issue as well, contributing to the shortage that the FDA reported this month of the antidepressant Zoloft and prescriptions for that medication hitting an all-time high in March, we are seeing major mental health issues as a consequence of the social distancing and the fear the coronavirus has created. Robbie, I read that there was quite a brouhaha this week in two of the most prestigious medical journals. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners what happened? And do you think this has anything to do with uh, anti-Trump sentiment and his promotion of hydroxychloroquine? The New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet retracted two articles on the coronavirus that had previously been published. Jeremy, you may not know, since you're not a physician, you're a businessman, but retracting an article in a journal this prestigious is a very rare event, and it represents egg on the face of the editors. Now, both studies were led by a researcher at Harvard who claimed access to a massive global database. The one in the Lancet reportedly showed that the anti-malarial hydroxychloroquine not only was ineffective, but dangerous. The one in the New England Journal of Medicine demonstrated that a specific blood pressure class of medication was not only safe, but potentially beneficial for patients infected with the coronavirus. Both articles following publication immediately impacted healthcare delivery. With cessation of all research studies 
on the use of the anti-malarial. Since the retraction, research studies have once again begun through the World Health Organization on hydroxychloroquine. What made researchers suspicious was that this huge database was unknown to academics around the world. Moreover, it supposedly contained information from 120 hospitals, but no inpatient facility that was queried had released access to the company that controlled the database, Surgisphere, and supplied the information for the study. Finally, a large number of cases that were included supposedly came from Africa early in the pandemic. Getting numbers early in a pandemic from Africa, a continent with a dearth of electronic health record technology would simply been impossible. The whole experience raises huge questions, both in the short and long run. First, it points out the dangers to patients when journals and the media publish and report very preliminary claims before they have been vetted and validated. Second, it has what I consider a darker shadow, which is the use of the media for non-scientific purposes, whether political, social, or financial. The lead author from Harvard of both studies, Dr. Mandeep Mera, apologized for the error. He's a well-respected researcher. And to answer your question, I don't think he had a bias. I think he saw this as an opportunity to use information to advance medical science. The source of the data, Dr. Sapan Desai, who's the founder of this company and had this purported mammoth database, continued to defend it. He claimed the information he provided for the study was accurate, but he refused to connect to reporters and refused to give a single hospital name that had participated. And once the articles were retracted, he was not available for further comment. I can't tell you what his motivation was in creating this database, whether it was driven economically, politically, or for some other reason. I think the big, big, big problem is that in our haste to find a solution to this problem, we are letting our desire for information to get ahead of good science, and that is always dangerous for the health of patients. Robbie, we keep getting lots of questions from parents about school. Do you have any updates? There's growing pressure for schools to reopen this fall. The Southern California chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics released a statement last month pushing back against educators who cautioned against reopening. The organization that represents 1,500 doctors issued a statement that keeping children away from classrooms will have more negative long-term consequences than the added risks of exposure. In a distressing but related story, the number of child abuse cases fell. That sounds crazy, but contrary to what it might seem, this is not a positive story about child abuse decreasing. The reality is that it's most likely rising rapidly. What is happening is that social distancing is keeping the abuse secret since few of any people go into these homes 
and the children are not coming to school where teachers can look for the telltale signs. As a result, ERs are reporting violent and horrific injuries far beyond what they saw in the past. Ravi, the media has been filled with warnings about the health of protesters and demonstrators in their communities of these massive gatherings uh, without masks. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, two weeks after the heinous murder of George Floyd, protests are continuing across the United States. As you point out, some individuals have worried about the danger to demonstrators, often huddled together without protective gear. Some people have labeled the risks as acts of foolishness and irresponsibility. Without question, gathering close together without masks is an added risk, and I would say an unnecessary risk, since the protest could still be held if everyone had a face mask on. Having said that, I think rather than it being a sign of lack of education, it's a measure of desperation. When you watch people around you die from the coronavirus at twice the rate as the rest of the community, only because of the color of your skin, you don't worry about getting a virus from which you most likely will recover. When 45% of blacks have to skip a meal or go to a charity location to eat because they can't afford to buy food and feed their family, racism in society looks bigger than the threat of the coronavirus. And when you have to teach your children never to defend themselves against attacks by the police and always keep their hands visible and out of their pockets, you don't have time to remind them to wear a mask. Objectively, these protests are likely to raise the rate of transmission of the virus among the participants and increase the already inflated mortality for black Americans. And that will be very unfortunate. At the same time, the bigger question is what actions will our nation take to address the etiology of the massive healthcare disparities that exist, not only relative to the coronavirus, but also heart disease, maternal mortality, cancer, and stroke. Of interest, 1,200 medical professionals posted an open letter online encouraging demonstrators to wear masks and keep apart during marches, but decrying any implications that the healthcare risk from not doing so exceeded the value of these types of protests. This is a remarkable response from healthcare professionals and a clear statement about the healthcare dangers of racism and socioeconomic determinants of health and disease, doctors are progressively widening their lane. Robbie, air travel is beginning to pick up. What's the current thinking on flying? Flying is a perfect example of everything we've talked about for the past two months on this podcast, Coronavirus, The Truth. It is more dangerous relative to becoming infected than staying home. There can be a lot of people in a relatively small space. And on a growing number of flights, passengers are being assigned middle seats and sitting within inches of each other. Nearly all airlines are requiring masks, but everyone ends up taking them off to eat food and drink water or other beverages. The recycled air that many people worry about is probably safe since it passes through air purifying filters, 
the big risk is the proximity to other people in this enclosed cabin space. If you're at high risk from a combination of age and medical diseases, the best advice is not to fly. If you have to go somewhere and you're relatively young and healthy, the added chance that you are taking compared to grocery shopping is relatively small, but it's not zero. And if you want to follow the science, researchers at Emory University have concluded window seats are, are the safest relative to avoiding infection. Robbie, I've heard there are a lot of promising drugs in the pipeline. Uh, how optimistic should we be that they will have an effective treatment for the coronavirus soon? Jeremy, this is a great question. Since the lay public often misinterprets the word promising, to most people that implies a cure could be just around the corner. To researchers and media releases, the word promising means something else. They use it when there's the smallest amount of evidence that a medication or procedure demonstrates an improved outcome compared to doing nothing. The findings might actually have nothing to do with saving lives, as in the promising reports we've talked about relative to remdesivir that has yet to be shown to reduce mortality even in highly selected patients, or the vaccine being tested by Moderna that hasn't been tested for efficacy beyond cell culture. And as we saw with hydroxychloroquine, promising treatments for which there isn't any science yet, and it's just a theory, might work, but the fact that it's promising does not mean that it does work. When people are afraid, they're vulnerable to promises that are unlikely to pan out. That type of false hope, or at least mischaracterization of the data, is unfortunate. Listeners can be sure that if there's anything that has been truly proven to prevent infection and save lives, they will hear about it on this show. But nothing on the short-term horizon falls into that category. It doesn't mean that various drugs won't be added to the doctor's armamentarium, but that the mortality from the coronavirus is unlikely to be significantly diminished as a consequence based on everything that we have available to us today. We talked a little bit last week about the higher risk of African-American patients dying from the coronavirus. How has the recent Black Lives Matter movement impacted views on the infection. As you know, Jeremy, from our Fixing Healthcare podcast series, I am very concerned and growingly concerned about the divide in our country on almost every issue. And this one is no exception. As you might predict, based on personal experience, 77% of whites trust the police compared to just 36% of African-Americans. But did you realize that 75% of blacks are extremely or very concerned that the coronavirus is doing great harm to people of color compared to only 30% of whites? That's an even bigger spread. Similarly, 70% of African-Americans are very concerned that the official response to the pandemic is biased based on race 
Well, only 30% of whites are. What's most interesting to me is that the data says that the fears and beliefs of African-Americans on this subject are more accurate. As we've said, the mortality rate from the coronavirus from African-Americans is double that of whites. The number of citations issued by the police for violation of state or city social distancing requirements is twice as high for blacks. And a much lower testing rate happens when African-Americans go to the ER with the same symptoms as white patients. Racism is not only visible in society, but prevalent in healthcare. Whites are only becoming aware of what blacks have known throughout their lives. Jeremy, I think it's important for listeners on the East and West Coasts to know what's happening in the heartland, the middle of the country. What I usually talk about and present on this podcast is national data. Can you update people on what you see in Iowa, both when it comes to the coronavirus and the impact it has had on the growing protests across the country? In terms of what things look like in Iowa, I went out to the stores over the weekend and I was one of a handful of people wearing masks. I don't see many people social distancing anymore. Um, I think, you know, I went to a sporting goods store. I think I might have been the only person wearing a mask there. Uh, it's very interesting to see because even on the on the coasts, on pictures from newspapers and things like that, you still see what looks like the majority of people wearing masks, but here it almost seems like life is, you know, more or less back to normal. That being said, in terms of the protests, I think a lot of people that I've heard are very concerned about, you know, how are these mass protests going to affect the rest of the community in terms of virus spread amongst the protesters and then returning, you know, home to their families or, you know, going back and spreading amongst the communities. And I think there's a lot of concern about that and frustration that that isn't discussed more of, you know, a few weeks ago, we were told that going to the beach together was super, super dangerous and, and could be a major spreading event, but it doesn't seem to have that same kind of dialogue around what's going on now. And I think that's frustrating for a lot of people. So Robbie, that being said, I think, you know, what's important to understand is that as we open up the economy and as larger groups gather, whether it's for protesting or future sporting events or whatever, you know, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that this virus is going to continue to spread a lot more. And, you know, we have to be cognizant and report on that and understand the ramifications of that, uh, both outside of politics or outside of making it political. Jeremy, that's why we call the show Coronavirus the Truth. We aim to say, what are the facts so that we all can have a good, civil, collaborative conversation about how to move our nations forward and maximize the health of all Americans? Jeremy, you're the father of a young son. It's one thing for me as a physician to tell you what are the relative risks of his returning to daycare. It's a different thing when that child at very low risk 
but not zero is your son. How are you feeling? Well, actually, to be to be quite frank, today was his first day going back to daycare. Um, it's been difficult not having him in daycare for a variety of reasons. And I think, you know, he missed his friends. Uh, he's an only child with no siblings. So I think the loneliness of not being around any other kids was really getting to him. Um, he was kind of becoming increasingly needy and, and, you know, not wanting to be away from either parent for very long. And it, it it was, it was kind of starting to get a little bit troublesome. And I think, you know, kind of to what we talked about before, I think at this point, you know, him going back to a more structured education program, him being around his peers and playing with his peers. And I think, you know, seeing the mortality rates and serious illness rates among kids his age, I thought the risk of putting him back in daycare, uh, for the sake of his mental health, quite frankly, and for, you know, his, his development kind of outweighed any sort of risk with the virus, in my opinion. Robbie, here's a couple questions from our listeners. First, what's the current thinking on the transmission of the virus, both the ways it's most likely transmitted and the ways the risk has been overrated? Listeners have to understand, Jeremy, that the number one, two, and three ways this virus spreads is person to person from coughing, sneezing, or any activity that sends droplets of liquid from our mouth or our nose directly into the air. It is why masks prove so valuable in controlling the infection. And particularly since asymptomatic people can be just as contagious as ones with symptoms, it's a strong argument why everyone should wear masks, at least inside stores, schools, and restaurants. Aerosolized transmission, that's what happens in normal talking, can spread the virus. And it can be detected on contaminated surfaces. But these are secondary routes of transmission. It's not that they don't exist, but it's that their impact is far less than these droplets of liquid that carry huge numbers of viruses and become attached to the mucosa of others' nose and mouth. And relative to not getting infected from countertops or doorknobs, people can fully protect themselves by washing their hands before touching their nose, mouth, or eyes. Robbie, I had a conversation with my parents yesterday about how, you know, we are so glad that my grandparents or both my grandmothers who were in the nursing home in their final couple of years of life had passed away before all this went on just because of the, the isolation and loneliness and not being able to visit your, you know, elderly people at the nursing home. Um, they were even talking about doing a drive-by birthday party for a friend of theirs from church who lives in a nursing home now and is having her hundredth birthday party. Who's been a big part of that community for years. So they're going to be driving by her window at the nursing home and waving like a bunch of different people by from their church. That being said, that brings me to the second listener question, which they asked, I can't stand to see my kids not seeing their grandfather for another month. 
how can I minimize the risk of harming dad? Robbie, can you kind of break that down and say, how do you minimize the risk for visiting people's grandparents? And, you know, the distinction between, you know, I have a, you have a healthy 65 year old grandfather uh, or grandmother versus a, you know, 98 year old grandmother, grandfather who's in the nursing home. The nursing home issues have been some of the most complex, ethically unclear ones in this entire coronavirus pandemic. As we said earlier in the show, one third of the deaths have come out of these facilities. And I think when we look back upon it, we're going to see that some of the actions taken were not appropriate. The challenge in a nursing facility is that you have lots of people in this very high-risk group. So it's not a question of one individual becoming infected and the family having made that decision for themselves. It's the impact it's going to have on dozens and dozens of other people whose families might have made a different choice, but because they're in this very contained, close environment, they watch their loved one die, despite what they did, but because of someone else's choice. I don't have a great answer for the nursing facilities. I think it's a broader ethical question for medicine. I don't think that it's humane to socially isolate people in that situation. And at the same time, there are ethical considerations when the actions of one family so negatively impact another. I think we're going to have to continue to debate this as our population ages, as chronic disease becomes greater. We're going to confront this reality in future pandemics. I hope we come up with a commonly agreed upon best solution. It's a lot easier for me to opine, however, when you're talking about a single grandparent in a particular family. Now, obviously, as you've pointed out, the recommendations depend on the age of your children and the risk profile of the grandfather. The key steps, no matter what, are similar. First, this is not an all or none decision. You don't go from zero to 100. There are steps that we can take, particularly in the context that we talked about last time of the 80-20 rule. Keeping six feet apart and wearing a mask appears to decrease the transmission in half. And self-quarantining at the first sign of symptoms or contact with anyone who is sick can diminish the risk in half again. It feels much less isolated being in the same house, the same room with the rest of the family than being home alone when everyone else is getting together. Even if what you really would like to do is to hug your loved one. If people are very high risk, particularly when the schools reopen, they probably need to continue social distancing at least for a while longer. 
And if anyone wants maximal protection, they need to self-quarantine. That's the only way to do it until there's a vaccine. But for most people, particularly as you pointed out, the healthier, older part of the population, particularly for those who can't wait to be reunited, my advice to them is be smart. Take the 20% of opportunities that offer the greatest protection, such as having everyone in the room wear a mask and keep six feet apart, but enjoy the 80% of what you've missed. Following the 80-20 rule isn't 100% safe, nor is it 100% normal, but it's a pretty good start and probably, given the coronavirus, the best that we can do I hope our listeners will take these precautions to heart and find ways to stay well, but enjoy their time sharing experiences with those they most love. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all available podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on one of our social media platforms. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.